Lotus Pod. to a very spooky edition of Lost and Found and Rewound, a podcast with one man who is not ashamed to admit he moisturizes, another man who is ashamed to admit he moisturizes, <laughs> claiming that moisturization is vain, and a third man who may never need to moisturize because, as I've said on an earlier episode, he is a magical creature. <laughs> I am Chris Lost. Um, I'm Found Jim. And I'm uh, Rick Rewound. He did it. A uh, little inside baseball there. This podcast is being recorded whenever we can record. We live. I live 610 miles from Jim. I live 410 miles from Rick. And so... Are those exact numbers? Did if you, you, if you, you do the math, it? yeah, if you do the math, you can figure out that Rick lives 200 miles from Jim. I should have made that a math problem. Yeah, yeah. that was a little PSAT. Tri- triangulation, there. you could figure out exactly where we are right, right we now <laughs> with all that information you just gave. That's the kind of problem I got wrong on the SAT. But but yeah, so Rick was concerned. Well, I didn't want to... I was concerned about trying to start releasing these episodes in sequence like once a month because I wasn't sure we'd be able to get together because of logistics. Rick was concerned that we had all this topical talk that we were doing on yeah. the episodes. And you lead with Halloween. And so I led with spooky... <laughs> That makes absolutely no sense out of context. In two days, it's going to be meaningless. Or in in 360 days, it'll make sense again, if that's when it actually comes out. Right. This this I will point out, this concern that's come to fruition by a man who wrote a a highly aggressive political album, maybe starting four years before the (laughs) Trump presidency, and then worried every day that it may not be relevant. Irrelevant. And it became more and more relevant. So foolish. The other thing I'll point out is this is a podcast about movies. I don't think one of them was released within two decades of when we're recording the podcast, so I'm not sure we'll ever go out of date. Or we That's are true. perpetually out of date. Right. But anyway, some housekeeping items. We're starting to listen back to the episodes and make edits. I wanted to apologize because in episode three, we both we said that both of the Wilson brothers were in Bottle Rocket, the short film. That's not true. All three of the Wilson oh, brothers that's right. were in I forgot, yeah, the coach-like brother, the brother who I always think of. Is he actually a coach in the, yeah, the show? Yeah, he's in a the, coach in the, he's in, in, the movie. In, in the movie. Okay, yeah. that's why I think of him as... I actually show that the initial, the original Bottle Rocket in my video class, and I'm going to show that tomorrow. Awesome. Or whenever this comes out. Right, it now, see, been now who's being topical. Six months. You've just ruined the episode. And then in addition, I accused Rick and Jim 
on that same episode of being bigoted against Italians for not liking Catherine Bigelow, but she's not likely not an Italian. Her <laughs> likely, name, so you didn't do. You're just well. Now hold on. Okay. Her name ends in a consonant, not a vowel, and she is identified online as American. So, <laughs> who the fuck knows what she is? But I still think she's a great filmmaker. All right, and then wow, <laughs> the films. The films I've seen this is my last <laughs> announcement. Films I've seen since we watched this movie, True Romance, which I watched with my son, Taxi Driver, The King of Comedy, both which I watched with my son, uh, Joker, which I was not allowed to take my son to by my wife. I took my son to see Joker. I heard that, yeah. Or he took me to see it. It was the most innocuous of those three films. Uh, Zombieland, which I watched with my son, Zombieland, Double Tap, same with my son. We went to a double feature. Sanjuro, I watched on a treadmill, and then I watched two Scarlett Johansson movies, Jojo Rabbit and Under the Skin. Oh, man, the Jojo Rabbit, that's that uh, Nazi movie, right? It's a hilarious film about a Hitler youth who befriends uh, an imaginary Hitler. Yes. And, and I laughed and I cried. Fantastic man. film. All right. Maybe I'll consider seeing it. Oh, you should. You would love it. In fact, you should take your whole family to it. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Yeah, okay, okay. The young one might be, I don't know. He's a sophisticated dude. Yes. A sophisticate. Gentlemen, what have you watched since our last? It's been a while. I watched All the President's Men. The observation, I think my wife made this observation that it that it actually has a happy ending. Of all the 1970s conspiracy movies, it's the one with a happy ending where the president... Where Trump is impeached? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where the president is, it, well, quits, right? As opposed to... And then I thought about Three Days of the Condor, actually. Three Days of the Condor actually ends, has a happy ending. So I guess that's Robert Redford. It's Robert Redford. Instead of succumbing to the nihilism of the Watergate era, he made hopeful conspiracy movies. And how does the Marathon Man end? <laughs> he has nothing to do with Marathon Man. I know, but isn't that a conspiracy film? Does that, end ha does that have a happy ending? I don't remember the ending of... Dustin Hoffman's in it as well. Yeah, Dustin Hoffman is in Marathon Man. Yeah. Does that end happy? I don't remember. William Goldman wrote that, right? I don't think that has... Does it have a happy ending? See, now I'm going to have to watch Marathon Man again. <laughs> you better. And I'm, I'm working my way through every episode of The Rockford Files. So, so far, I, I think I'm 10 episodes in. I've seen James Woods. There was an episode with both Suzanne Somers and Jill Clayburgh. The old dude from uh, Babe, Pig in the City, and uh, L.A. Confidential, whatever his name, James, or the actor. He played like a tough tennis instructor. Oh, who was the, who was the actual woman who was the tennis player? I can't remember who that was. It's amazing how many famous people are in the Rockford Files, because it's 1974, and it's before they're all famous. I'm loving every moment of it. And especially the theme song. The theme song's great, but... In that car. <laughs> And the car is great, but and honestly... His, his lawyer, right? She's in a lot of the early episodes. Yeah, so yeah. Like she her. shows up a couple times. Whoops. Stuart Margolin, Angel. Yeah. He, he actually has only shown up once so far. He shows up in the pilot, but he directed an episode that had some pretty amazing camera moves. I didn't realize the guy who played Angel in that was... He's more known as a director. He directed mm. lots of TV, but amazing character actor. And Noah Berry Jr. as his father, and James Garner, of course, is amazing. I laugh. I laughed out loud. I think I laughed out loud every episode. He says something that's hilarious. So yeah, I'm. Uh, it's like I've turned into an old retired person. It's like just in the same way people would watch uh, Matlock, right? We'd make fun of old people watching Matlock. Or Murder She Wrote. Yeah, Murder She Wrote. It's like me sitting there watching, watch, <laughs> watching. Uh, 
old. But it's not first run. I mean, it's not like you're sitting there no, watching first No, that's true. Run. So it's even more depressing. It's just I'm watching ancient Rockford Files episodes. At, at the boon of television, you've decided to go to ignore <laughs> exactly. the 300 channels new, of new content. New content. And streaming. Oh, we got a caller. We got a caller. <laughs> caller number one. Who is it? What does it say? <laughs> Not assigned. Oh, it's a it's a robot. Oh. I can't remember what else I watched. I did I've watched lots of stuff, but I don't remember any of it. You the saw Rock Joker. I did see Joker. I did I, I'm not happy about it. It was it was yeah, you're only allowed one podcast rant, rant. about the <laughs> exactly. Joker. I'll I'll do it for you. It was beautifully shot. In fact, there's a beautiful iconic scene where he dances down a staircase where I thought that was the only moment in Joker where I was like, boy, this is a really beautiful film. And yeah, it was, it was like, really well shot. But it is horribly written and terribly acted and just garbage. And I was listening to your rant about it, and I was like, boy, Rick, you're really giving these people too much credit. They <laughs> they, they were just, it was just such a bad, it was just a bad script. There was It wasn't like they thought through the decisions in that script. They just wrote it and thought they were cool, and they weren't. And it was bad. Yeah, and and so there is also that I've talked multiple times in the past week or two because again I'm teaching this this class, and I'm talking about narrative filmmaking, and the idea that you can just you know like so most most people who make videos right, they think they can just do it. They can just improvise because they hang out with their friends and they shoot a video over the weekend, and it's always stupid, and it, it, it has one joke in it, and it's 10 minutes long, right? And that's because they don't plan it out. And so, yeah, I, and, and I always say actors always love to talk about how they improvise the film and everything like that, and almost no good movie is improvised, or if there was improvisation, then they rewrote everything. And, yeah, I think, I think maybe Joker is a little too improvised, probably. This is bad. See, again, you're giving it too much credit. <laughs> Jim, you liked Joker. Why did you like it? What was your... That's why he's so quiet. What is what is this now? You're talking about? <laughs> I'm sorry. I think Jim, Jim Jim wouldn't know. It was not made in Great Britain. What Jim right. told me was, is he walked out of the theater when he noticed that Cesar Romero refused to shave his mustache and just put that white makeup over the mustache. <laughs> that really offended him. He was like, if I'm going to watch an actor on screen, he should make a commitment to shave that mustache. He shouldn't just put makeup over it. So Henry Cavill was essentially carrying on the tradition of Cesar Romero when he refused to shave his mustache. Right, and then uh, they digitized his upper lip. (laughs) That is funny. It is. Yeah. That's hubris, digitizing (laughs) an upper lip. No one's, no, you just say shave the the mustache. It should grow back. It'll grow back. Right. It's easier to have a makeup person put a mustache Mustache on your face. Than it is to... Yeah, digitize a mustache off. Oh, yeah, that was what I wanted to share with you. Okay, so Taxi Driver and a $1.5 million budget made $28 million, 18.6 times its investment. Mm. Uh, King of Comedy on a $19 million budget made $2.5 million. It lost $16.5 million. And Joker on a $55 million budget made $852 million, 15.5 times. So Taxi Driver was the better bet of those three. And you wonder why I'm just sitting in my basement watching Rockford Files episodes. It's because the world has gone to hell, man. I agree. I mean, those those two, Taxi Driver and King of Comedy, were far better films. Jim, what have you seen? I haven't seen any movies since we watched. <laughs> well, what have you watched? What have you consumed, Jim? <laughs> um, let's see. I, I, well, I was watching just recently... Uh, 
some of the new episodes of Travel Man. It's a British show. <laughs> oh, with uh, what's his name? I saw. Cl- I knew you had a gem in there. Travel <laughs> you man. You never heard of Travel Man? Never. Heard it's what's Richard, his name? Richard Iowade. Yeah, Richard Iowade from the IT crowd. I, yeah, the IT. IT of course, crowd. yeah. I don't, I'm not familiar. But uh, what's yeah. the other show he does? Where like there was one. Was that the Gadget Man show? Well, yeah, I saw he a took clip. over. I think the Gadget Man earlier. Gadget Man. It was Stephen Fry did it, and then he took it over, and then. But Travel Man is more recent, and he's been doing it for several years. But I think he's stopping now. Yeah, I just started. I hadn't seen any for a few years, and I watched some some new ones just now, and they were very funny. There's some good outtakes of seeking of like him making film ref completely out of date film references and like. You know, like a nobody knowing. Yeah, how no one, dare he? Yeah, <laughs> ancient like Marlena Dietrich. That's what it was like. There, nobody knows who who <laughs> Marlena Dietrich is. And he's, he can't can't comprehend that. <laughs> but other than that, I don't know. Nothing. Has he directed a movie lately? I don't think so. He directed that uh, pretty amazing uh, breeders yeah. video. Yeah, with the space people, yeah. their yeah. space suits. Yeah, I saw the, the his one movie. I can't remember it. It's like really insulting just to say it. Oh, it was, it was kind of like a Wes Anderson movie. I don't. I don't think it really was, but it's just about kids. Uh, it has kids in submarine, it. Submarine, right? Yeah, submarine. And then I didn't. Yeah, I didn't see the double, which was with what's his name, <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg, Jesse Eisenberg. I remember seeing a preview for that. It's it's like a Dostoevsky thing. I, yeah, I don't know why I didn't watch that. So this is a very fairly current director. Yeah, yeah. He's. Yeah. Have you ever he's, seen the IT Crowd? Nope. Oh my gosh! Is it a TV show? Yeah. Why? Why are you even here? <laughs> like who? <laughs> I, I'm I'm the I'm the audience surrogate. Okay, I'm the person who sees the things that people can relate to. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are the academics. Look, we've all, we've set this up straight. We never said I was the smart one. I didn't say smart. I just it's just I or thought you watched it. a lot of TV and watched what about, good TV. Like Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. Yeah, you ever seen that? <laughs> <laughs> I have not. Sorry, really? This is where two brothers gang up on. Look, it's just this. Uh, now I know how David Lee Roth felt when the Van Halen brothers would go at him. You know, uh, David Lee Roth would have tied to today's film. I, I almost feel yeah. like we should force you to sit here and watch an episode of the IT. There's an episode <laughs> of the IT crowd, a scene that, that makes me weep every time I see it. It's so funny. It makes me weep. The, the heaven where. Oh, yeah. I'll the, put it on the list. Just put that on the list. You have there. to watch it soon because it's starting to age. I've, I've watched it recently and it's it's starting to age a bit. Mm-hmm. It's already aging, but <laughs> it's starting to age. Like it's How's that possible? Well, it's the early 2000s and some of the jokes are starting to feel, you know, non, non-enlightened. Obama jokes? There's Obama <laughs> jokes in Before Obama. Well, no, the la- I think the last season. Was. They're joking about having a bad president in office. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a British TV show. Oh. Well, doesn't every country care about our president? <laughs> I think they do, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I think they do, too. Our, our synopsis for the president's oh. analyst, Rick, what do you got? Yeah, I wrote one. A psychiatrist is recruited to be the president of the United States therapist. What starts as a dream job descends into a paranoid trip through the swinging 60s. <laughs> <laughs> Again, me being the dumb one, I was hoping you were going to explain the film to me with the synopsis. <laughs> is that the point? Is is so? The point is to give an idea of what the I, I I don't know. I think that's a good synopsis. It is good. I mean, it describes exactly what happens in the film. Did the film have a message? Do you think, or was it just a comedy? Oh yeah. Well, it's just all about. Well, I think what it's 
come to pass. It's like, I think that's kind of the hard thing about these movies like this are kind of like cautionary tales, but it's like, it's already happened or, well, it's like, it's all about like the, it, it could be like the viewed as like the internet and everything are just, it's surveillance and paranoia and everything is yeah. known about you. And yeah, no, big, I think you're right. Yeah. It's kind of hard to watch now. Yeah. So I think somebody watching it just for the first time now might not see it as that intriguing. In fact, I had a conversation with a student who was talking about how 2001 was okay, but it would have been cooler if there were like moments of the ending in the middle of the film and everything that, you know, like a Christopher Nolan kind of thing. Like he has flashbacks, flashes to the future scenes where he's seeing his whole life and everything like that. And I'm like, I don't think anyone would have accepted that kind of narrative in 1968. I think the reason why Christopher Nolan is able to make the movies he makes is because 2001 laid the groundwork. But you realize at some point, everything's referenced. I just chatted with someone about how they hadn't seen Blow Up, right? And they're a photographer. And and I'm like thinking, you should see the movie Blow Up. You're a photographer. They were talking about the conversation, right? So they've seen the conversation. And I, I know the conversation was influenced by Blow Up. But I'm thinking back about Blow Up. And it's like, if you've seen Austin Powers, if you've seen, you know, any movie with a photographer in it as a hipster, if you've seen any movie with mimes and confusion about, you know, what's what reality is, you'd go, you know, yeah, this movie's kind of... And I realized because it's so referenced and it echoed throughout the whole, <laughs> whole culture and filmmakers stole from it and and were inspired by it that now you watch a movie like that and you kind of go yeah i've seen this all before what's so great about it it's like oh this was the one thing that started it all but yeah you start to wonder like this movie it's like super paranoid it's a really early paranoid movie yeah we're talking about conspiracy theory movies right this is like yeah. five or six years before uh the parallax view and uh three days of the condor and what's what's the other good conspiracy movie or even <laughs> Even uh, Capricorn One, right? <laughs> you know, it's like then. The, but this movie is is yeah an early conspiracy movie and making you question, yeah, the powers that be. Also, that idea that all these spies they're not really fighting each other. They're all kind of just these floating amoral freelancer type people, right? Who aren't really beholden to one nation or one philosophy. Which just, actually, just now that that kind of flashes back to uh, uh, the Grand Illusion. If you want to get really yeah, pretentious right. film, that's what the grand illusion, the yeah. Jean Renoir movie, Renoir movie is like, it's all about the class system. It's like the, the people, the, the soldiers from opposite sides have more in common than they do with their commanding officers. And the officers talk to each other from opposing sides, have more to do with each other. And the people from the same country don't see eye to eye at all. And it's yeah. just these strat, like, uh, you know, uh, strata of cult of society you know the different yeah. classes of people and it's actually that's more what about, that's all about yeah and class like, as opposed to country right right and yeah so maybe it's a cycle thing right maybe maybe we're just in a new paranoid cycle this is what i took away from the film to complement that it's it's okay to assassinate people who are overexposed it's mm -hmm. safe to be nobody and uh, what do we do in a world where anybody could not be a nobody? Because like, <laughs> man, cause, I mean, that was sort of like he became he was he was fine and happy and safe, allegedly, uh -huh. when he was just a regular analyst. And then when he knew something or was essentially a celebrity of some sorts in the spy circle, he became an immediately expendable. And they talk about that, like killing people. The only people that they kill are people that deserve to be killed or 
are in the in the target. And I was like, it kind of feels like cancel culture, where as soon as somebody pops their head up, we take them down. You just need to keep your head down in life, and you'll be fine. And as soon as like as soon as he popped his head up and tried to be something bigger than what he was, he became a target, and everybody tried to take him down. So then the parallel to now, though, is that what? Yeah. So what you when you said that thing earlier about exposure. You know, if that's how the whole fabric of society is now built on with social media, that everyone's exposing themselves, right? And so that means that that cycle is not just happening to people with knowledge or fame or power, right? It's happening to everybody, right? You're going to tear down just your next door neighbor, right? <laughs> Thus the question, what do we do in a world where anybody could be, or could not be a nobody, right? I mean, anybody could be somebody. Did, have you seen um, Assassination Nation by chance? I haven't. It's a great film. You should watch it. It was actually well ahead of its time. I, I think it came out before sort of the outrage culture, cancel culture kind of peaked. And it's all about that. It's all about no one is, now that we are all online and everybody knows everything about us, at any moment, any one of us could be the scourge of the world. Right. Yeah. It's terrifying. It's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Two different perspectives. <laughs> So yeah, the, the, so I guess maybe to go deeper with what the movie's about is, yeah, James Coburn, right, is is the president's analyst. He winds up getting a whole bunch of information and he starts getting more and more paranoid, but he starts realizing that his paranoia is actual reality, right? That he's being pursued by all sorts of spy agencies around the world for the information he has in his head. And then the the American spy agencies want to kill him because of the information in his head. He goes underground winds up with a bunch of hippies and then finds out the biggest, most dangerous superpower is not a government, it's the phone company. Mm -hmm. And so at the time, AT&T was a monopoly. It did rule, right? It was before AT&T was broken up. And so, yeah, I think the obvious parallel now is, yeah, when you think about what's going on with Facebook, when you think about what's going on with Google, right? Mm -hmm. And what else, what else is left? There's one other, you know, big company, right? Microsoft, I guess, maybe? Apple? Right, right, except Microsoft's run by a philanthropic fella. Well, he was. doesn't run Microsoft anymore. That's true. Yeah, he cashed out. Like all these World War II guys, somehow they got through the 50s where everyone was thinking, oh yeah, these corporations are great. <laughs> and then finally, like, so Catch-22 is about World War II, but it didn't come out until the 60s, right? And so it was like, finally these guys got older and they started saying, oh, all these jerks that we were in the military with, you know, they're now they're running the world it's not about your country. It's about the corporation and the profit. And, and we're going to do whatever we want to do, you know, regardless of what country, what, who you are and everything. You know, it's just kind of this, this power structure that's beyond it. And now we have, I mean, I think everybody understands that now, right, with the corporations. But it's, now it's, yeah, more disturbing because it's, because in this film, because the phone company is a communications company, right? And that's what's stitching everything together. And everyone hates the phone company. Everyone hates the phone company is what they say. And it's like, everyone hates foot, uh, Facebook, but how many people are on Facebook now? Mm -hmm. Billions, right. right? It's in the billions. So it's, it's, it's kind of that same parallel where we're in a new place where we had that wonderful, the internet was this wonderful revolution. And now it's becoming obvious that it's, it's, it's also a terrible thing that's oppressing us. And I think that's the same kind of thing that this movie talks about what 50 years ago 50 plus years ago well and another point of that album that you wrote that you thought was going to be outdated <laughs> which is just doubled down the situation is doubled down on itself yeah yeah i never i didn't i i was actually thinking that yeah it was incredibly analogous to the times and and but i i forgot the point that the phone company 
was essentially the internet of that era. And that's what he talks about. Like there's, I mean, they basically talk about the internet too, because they talk about, well, it's expensive to keep all these switches and all these devices and working and stuff. And he starts to describe things and like, yeah, I thought he was describing the internet. And then he talks about having something in your hand that has, you know, the power of communication. And it was a microchip that they're going to put in your brain. brain but essentially right. it's the thing I'm holding in my hand right now. Smartphone. It's a phone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's just, yeah, that was always my problem with like cyberpunk and, you know, William Gibson is like, oh, oh yeah, people are going to have jacks in their head and everything like then I'm like, that's, you know, that's not the big deal. It's like, they'll be able, if they can figure out a way to control your thoughts or use your thoughts to control things, they're going to be able to have you be able to have a helmet or something. And it was like, yeah, nobody thought, everyone was thinking much more like direct plugging in, but it was just like, oh no, all we have to do is we just have to build a computer that's small enough to carry with you everywhere and that's networked everywhere and then everyone's brains will be sucked into it right you don't you don't need you don't have to jack in or steal anything yeah you don't need to have the 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 parasite sucked onto the back of your head you know i, I talked about that i said like imagine if you time traveled from 20 years ago and you came came to the present day and everyone had a parasite like mechanical parasite on the back of your head and you'd be horrified but then you also think about but how is that different than you you go into the future 20 years to the 2019 and you see everybody on their phone it's it's pretty similar well right? it's like those scenes in the office Office, those transition scenes in the office, the British and the American one, where they just show people staring at their computers. Mm. Like it's a, it's like a sea of people staring yeah. at their computers. You don't realize, and then you like go to work and you're like, is that how people look? Because that looks so <laughs> yeah. like they're zombified. And like yeah. then you look and they actually are. Jim, um, you've made a conscious choice to stay off of Facebook. Is this because you you've seen these? You, you know, we're we're the ones that haven't learned from all these warnings, and you have. Because I saw this movie several years ago, and it's all there. It was very clear. But no, I don't know. Yeah, I, I guess I was never tempted. I don't know. It, and definitely, it got. It seems to have gotten worse and worse. Like, why would I? Yeah, why would I? <laughs> why jump on? Now? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now that it's destroyed democracy <laughs> itself, it's like, oh yeah, I think I'll try Facebook now. Seems like yeah, this is the time to jump on. I don't know. There's a great moment where Rick was doing a rant on a podcast and he's like, and now everybody's on Facebook. I don't know anybody who's not. Well, he's like, wait a minute. My brother Jim's not on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. Again, going back to Jim's I, magical nature, he makes sage I decisions did, well in advance of having to. I did get a phone this year. <laughs> I know. I was never more disappointed in you. <laughs> I don't use it very much, but I held off until like 2000 before I got a cell phone. <laughs> I got one. 19 in, years. on. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. 2003. Is when I got myself. Oh, really? Okay. So I thought I was really late on the boat. I was in my job and a guy couldn't get a hold of me all weekend. Yeah. And was so Imagine furious that. that the next Monday he said, get a cell phone. This you have If you're going to work this job, you need a cell phone. And I, I was so wise back then. I can't believe I did it. And did the boss call you Chris or did he call you found? Did he say found? <laughs> no, I'm lost. Get a cell phone. Oh, lost. <laughs> Who's found? Jim. He's found, found Jim. Found Jim. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, Who am I? You're Rick Rewound. Okay. <laughs> Got it. He did call you did call me lost because he couldn't lost. get a hold of me. <laughs> exactly. Your name your name is appropriate. Well, forget about like Facebook and phones. I, I want to get like a gong after watching this movie. <laughs> I do the, too. <laughs> I, I I mean I've always thought gongs were really cool, but then I yeah, after seeing the opening scene with James Coburn in his office, he's the 
analyst and when he's alone he just meditates and plays his gong <laughs> you know i've always wanted to be a musician and i finally found my instrument this gong <laughs> is there some way we can put it in the movie right yeah he uh, definitely was probably a personal it, yeah, it feels like james coburn spent a huge amount of time with a gong in <laughs> in 1967 well i felt like he was actually playing it i'd never seen somebody play a gong i've always seen people hit a gong like gong, you know, like yeah, a joke it's like, it's like priming it you know i don't know what yeah. they call it where you get it resonating, you know, he, he, he kind of knew how to do that. Yeah, and he's doing a kind of meditation thing. Yeah. yeah, I loved it. That was great. Should we talk about James Coburn, how weird he is? I just find him very strange. <laughs> yeah, you go for it. I've got a Coburn anecdote, so I'll let you. Oh, oh cool. I, it's, not, up. It's, it's just how, how smoothly he moves from being kind of like super cool and sort of on top of everything to being really twitchy and paranoid and then also conniving and creepy, you know, like how, how fluidly he, he's able to move between those things. And also how he's like a cowboy actor, right? Basically, right? And then somehow in, in that era becomes like a hipster kind of guy, like with the Flint movies, right? Flint, mm -hmm. that's him, right? Yeah, yeah it's yeah. what's the ones with uh, Dean Martin? Those are Matt something yeah, else yeah okay right. so the flint movies yeah it's yeah. like how he he became like a hipster which i'm sure he always was but but how yeah that that's just that's all i have to say about him is how well, he even does an action star moment where he pops yeah. through that red smoke with this with the m16 and shooting at the camera and it's just how far how extreme he makes his grin i think he gets <laughs> exactly. speaking of the joker yeah it's like he can yeah he, his his crazy smile can be kind of endearing, but then yeah, he can make it really creepy. And in yeah. this movie, he he goes when he really starts getting paranoid, he he turns the grin on full. Yeah, and rictus. It, yeah, it's a rictus. You get the chills. Yeah, he 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 definitely pushes it to a point where it's like, oh, this man's unhinged. You know, yeah, he can be unhinged, but he can also be really you know warm. Kansas City. Food-wise, a city famous for its barbecue, but that's about to change. My name is W. Dave Keith, host of the podcast Taco the Town, and I believe that Kansas City is one of the most underrated, underappreciated, up-and-coming taco towns in the USA. On Taco the Town, we will shine a light on all the amazing tacos Kansas City has to offer. Kansas City is a great taco town filled with a variety of untapped taco stylings and flavors, and on the Taco the Town podcast, we won't stop until we've tasted every taco in the town. No taco table will go unturned. Each episode, we review a new taco Taco joint with a special guest. We share taco memories, discuss taco topics, and put tacos to the test. We check the latest stories in taco news, and no taco is off the table on Taco the Town. If you love tacos, like I do, you're gonna love Taco the Town. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and Google Play. That's Taco the Town. He would have yeah. been a tremendous Joker. Yeah. I think, he I think yeah. the key to casting Joker is picking someone who you wouldn't pick. If Jack Nicholson was an obvious pick and he was terrible, and Joaquin Phoenix was an obvious pick and he was terrible. Uh, what's his name? The Heath handsome, Ledger. Heath Ledger was fantastic, but you wouldn't ever pick him to be the Joker. He's too good looking. He's too suave. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's, he's the only good thing about that movie, but he was good. 
Yeah. I think Coburn would have been great because the Joker is like sort of thin and tall and crazy and mm-hmm. as Jim pointed out, a master of his smile. Right. Yeah. What's your uh Mike Coburn? Coburn? Well, so in two thousand six I was on this horrible project and a friend of mine loaned me book on tape, Kid Stays in the Picture. And I listened to it. He just died. I know. I listened yeah. to it while I was in my rental car, and I actually would go out to lunch and take an extra long lunch so I could listen to more and more of it. And after a while, I very pathetically started to imagine that I was Joshua. I don't know if you've ever listened to the kid who stays in the picture, but every once in a while, Robert Evans would be like, and to you, Joshua, I was never around for you, but I love you so much. And I was like, <laughs> I love you. I was like literally crying. I'm like, I'm like, I love you too, Dad. I, don't, I know we didn't get time together, but it's okay. He was like, Joshua. I'm like, yeah. And I literally, I was sitting in the car and I was like telling my friend, I'm like, I think I'm becoming Joshua. He's like, who the fuck is Joshua? <laughs> so anyway, he, Robert Evans died yesterday. This is the eve after his death, I think, right? Yesterday he died? Well, I mean, it could be six months from now. He could have died six months ago, Chris. Well, I, well no, I'm going to say it's yesterday. Okay. So Coburn met Flickr, the guy who wrote and directed this film on the set of Charade, which is one of my favorite movies with uh, Audrey Hepburn and um, Terry Grant, I think. And Coburn, Flickr gave Coburn the script. He took it to Robert Evans. And this is one of the first Mm. films that Robert Evans produced after Mm. becoming the head of Paramount. Wow. Which is funny because this, you hear like Robert Evans had a lot of flops. And I think this one, what were the numbers on this film? Oh, it's $2 million budget and it made 2.45 million. So not much. Yeah. Which is actually $10 million in today's dollars. But anyway, it was, it was critically well received. It got an 80% on Rotten Tomatoes, but it was, it was uh, the, the child of Flickr, Coburn and uh, Robert Evans. Wow. Rest his soul. Mm-hmm. Depending on when you li- listen to this, because there may be a day you listen to it where he's not dead. Is that <laughs> true? It would be even no. He oh. will always be dead. <laughs> yeah, unless I'm not sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> now, have, now you're warping time. I haven't seen the new Terminator movie, so I'll, I'll wait till yeah. I see that before I make a decision on whether or not we can go back in time. Music, gentlemen. You must have a lot of observations around the music in this film. You know, the Grateful Dead was supposed to play the band in this film. Crazy. <laughs> Did you know that? I just saw it when I was... Uh, they turned it They turned it down because they couldn't have control over the scene. Smart. <laughs> what were your thoughts well, about the music? It was like uh, Lalo Schifrin did the music, who did tons of TV music, that great TV music. That's what, when, when it, the credits open, it's like, I was like, oh, is this like the odd couple or something? It definitely had that... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But uh, he didn't do the uh, the Odd Couple, but that's all I could he think did of. Mission of. Yeah, Impossible, Mission Impossible, right? and he did. It's crazy, yeah, to look him up. What he did, he did everything. Or he's still he's still alive. Still he's alive. Still that's stuff. the amazing thing. He's Lalo Schifrin is still alive. He was but not I, afraid to use a clap. Although, yeah, yeah. Of course, by the time this episode comes out, <laughs> Lalo Schifrin rest. He may in not peace. have been yeah. born yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> This was that yeah, clavicle. Is that what you call, or is that a bone? What's the thing? What's, what's the <laughs> clavichord? Oh no! Clavace. Clavace. Sorry. And flute. Lots of jazz flute. Jazz I always love the jazz. But sometimes 60s. you can get that noise from a clavicle. It's like yeah. somebody breaking their clavicle. <laughs> if you don't have clavace, in fact, I think that's the origin of the clavace. Right? Is how to recreate that breaking clavicle sound. <laughs> Jeffrey Dahmer hey, used clavicles <laughs> in his apartment in Milwaukee. <laughs> Is it too dark of a joke? 
This isn't a. It wasn't too dark. We were talking about music, man, and now you're talking about cannibalism. People may not know who Dahmer is when this podcast comes out. He may not have. I we, don't think we, they know now. We could save people's lives. I we uh, Jim and I performed at a uh, show in Milwaukee a, a few years ago, or maybe a decade ago, depending on when you're listening to this. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> and uh, there's a poster, and it's Milwaukee, and I'm like going, and I said, why, why does, why is there, why is William Shatner on the poster? And then someone said, that's Jeffrey Dahmer, Rick. I was like, oh, okay, like I'm supposed to know, I'm I'm supposed to remember what Jeffrey Dahmer looks like. Even I'm having a hard time remembering Jeffrey Dahmer. Depending, it's been 25 years, right? Yeah. Right. So depending on when you listen to this, if you meet someone named Jeffrey Dahmer in Milwaukee, despite how handsome he is in his mustache, do not go home with him. Is is Lalo Schifrin in <laughs> oh, this timeline? He's not acknowledging. What? Yeah, Lalo Schifrin is. Tell us more about well, him. Um, this he was like. Well, this this is 1967, so he wasn't. You know, the music was pretty good, but I think he peaked about 10 years later. He did the music for the Cat from Outer Space. Oh man. <gasps> Great movie. So that's that's the movie that our mother references when, or she used to reference when we would have to, she would say things like, well, you can take me to this because I had to sit through the cat from outer space. You know, it was like her example of the was, sacrifice she made for us as children going to the LaGrange Theater. And like, I had to sit through some of the worst movies ever made. 19, and that's 1970s that, Disney yeah. movies, like and, the Apple Dumpling Gang. <laughs> What about, exactly. Like, like and it's like the cat town. from outer space is where it was like, yeah, where it that was a real a true test of her her her. Uh, but I yeah, I just rem- I remember. I mean, I definitely want to watch it. Now. I have done. I've not seen it. I probably saw it on TV after that. But I, it's been year. You know, I, I don't think I've seen it really since I was nine years old. It'd be so interesting to see if there's a soundtrack record. I, I looked it up already. No, there yeah. isn't. Yeah, oh, it doesn't exist. But I, I didn't realize this is yeah. This is going way off. You know. <laughs> yeah, you know this is should be. Yeah, our, let's our not let that Disney, happen. Uh, <laughs> Disney podcast, seventies Disney movie podcast. But what is it? Oh, it's like the cat from outer space. It's like both of the commanding officers of Mash four zero seven seven are in it. Oh man, it's Harry Morgan and you know uh, McLean Stevens. And really, are both in the cat from outer they're not, space? They're not playing. Obviously, they're not playing there characters they're both yeah they should that would have been amazing if they were both colonel potter and whatever and you know where like uh mclean stevenson's from bloomington illinois that's right is he really bloomington is in mclean county and adelaide stevenson the stevenson family he's his name is actually two of the most you know biggest family names from the bloomington normal area in bloomington (laughs) illinois mclean stevenson he's got the name of the county and the last name of some of the the famous one of the famous families. He's related to the wow. Stevenson family. <laughs> but I did I did enjoy that every parent in this film was tearing their kid a new asshole because I <laughs> felt like oh yeah that that's about how it happens at my house. Every parent is kind of tearing their kid a new asshole. <laughs> did you notice that? Like even oh, yeah. the parent across the street right. When he, they show up at the weirdo's house and they yeah. walk in. Like the parent across the street was just like, screaming at her kid yeah. to distract you from the fact that there was a phone company truck on the other side of the street. Did you oh, see that? Oh, no. no I didn't yeah, that's, see that. I, that oh. was the. F- I, I, I need to be more careful when I watch. I got to watch it again because I don't know how many times the phone company truck is in the movie, but I noticed it there. But yeah, yeah. And I, th- I think that's part of it is, is kind of 
you know, popping the balloon of that, that suburban life, you know, it's like, yeah, like seventies movies, right? Spielberg, right. It's always the dysfunctional family and people, you know, yelling at each other, right? That, well, that's the thing about the calf. I want to go back to the calf from outer space. I just, I haven't, I have to watch it. I haven't seen, like I said, I haven't seen it since I was nine years old, but I think it's very obvious that E.T. is just a total ripoff of the calf from outer space. And I looked it up and no one says anything, you know, maybe we're going to be attacked but maybe there's some suppression going on but it seems like very obvious and when i read the synopsis and i what i vaguely remember the movie it's like oh yeah this cute little thing is kind of like trying to get repair his spaceship to get back you know and and these kids help him out and well it's it's adults help him out but they're kids involved and yeah, yeah. and it turns into like a big chase with jeeps and yeah the, military. Gov- the government yeah. the government is definitely after the cat from outer space and that's geez. a that is a dead-on take we are <laughs> yeah the spielberg he's going to send the assassination squad <laughs> from munich <laughs> after us <laughs> so that's the th- I, I like watched some 20 minute video of a guy talking about the shining and no it's not talking about like so he's referencing what is it room 238 have you seen that documentary yeah, where the guy that. goes off on the theories and everything like that but then this guy goes off on a whole thing about how it's a Jungian thing and how Kubrick is talking about the whatever that that secret book that Jung had that nobody saw for years and then how he had that and how it's all Jungian and everything like that and how the answers to The Shining are all based around Jung and everything like that. So it's, if like I can be roped into watching this ridiculous 20-minute video about that, I think... Yeah, you could you could be an internet star. You could get this hundreds of thousands of views talking about how the cat from outer space is is ET. You just made this podcast, Don. Yeah, and I, I, I just too bad you're not on Facebook. I just, yeah, I just worked this out just like in about ten minutes. Just and like I said, I haven't watched the movie again yet. But and it's like his collar glows. You right. Know, he communicates with his collar, and it's like the finger. You know, it's like a... you nailed it. I'm <laughs> yeah. I'm all in. Who who was the president in this film? Oh, it's, you mean who was oh, the president who, at the time? No, I know who the president at the time was, but who was the yeah. president supposed to be in this film? They mention Jackie Kennedy in the film, right? But Kennedy no. was already dead. Yeah, it's it's fictional. There's yeah. no. It's not Lyndon no B. Johnson. Reference. No, it's not placed in reality at all. The, he says, "What doesn't he say something about the the neighbor says something about the president being liberal?" That's true. Yeah, I mean, it, I guess it is kind of. It's like the ninth. It is of its time, so it's it's LBJ. But it, I don't. There's no reference like it's supposed to be LBJ at all. I don't think in the movie, right? Yeah, there's, no. there's absolutely they consciously avoid. Yeah, there's who absolutely the no is. reference to. You don't ever see him or the president, or he's just this. He's it's symbolic. He just shuts the door to the Oval Office. That's the only. Yeah, and I remember. Yeah being a kid and seeing one of the Pink Panther movies where they have a guy who looks like Gerald Ford and being really freaked out about it in a movie, like seeing somebody, and I think they were intentionally implying that it's Gerald Ford, it really took me out of the movie, even though at the time <laughs> Gerald Ford was president, right? I liked uh, Dulles Airport empty, you know, Aero <laughs> Saarinen, my favorite architect, you know. Did Dulles, right? It was like, how did they do that? It was like the... You're right? asking me? No, I mean, just how do they, you know, how do you get an airport? You spend a lot of time in airports. How do, well, you, how do, you, how do you empty an airport? It was just an amazing shot. It was My like, theory is it was a 4 a.m. Yeah, but it was shot. daylight. You it could see the light outside. It was daylight. It, must, it, was, probably five, it was probably summer, 5 a.m. or when something. When was it yeah. built? Well, he died, you know. Oh, yeah. He's, early, he had like a brain 
hemorrhage or something. Brain. Yeah. He was had like so a surgery and died. It's not like they they shot it before. I think the that, that may have was been. Open. Yeah, I don't know if that was the last thing he did, or I think Dulles. It could have very well been one of the last things. It was he eerie designed. how empty it was. Like it yeah, clearly it just, was empty. I think it was early. It, I don't think it was just built. I think it was mm. around. Maybe it was a terminal that they had closed and yeah. they shot in it and yeah. then but it, it's a huge it's the main building yeah it's a huge building it, that was great to see it it's just the scene they're walking through and it's completely empty so not to actually analyze the film but what were what were they trying to say something there because if you remember most of the other shots in the film almost look like they were shot without the people around them knowing they were shooting a film yeah the opening yeah the new york Right, Manhattan. Yeah, they're shots definitely, are definitely. So they're not stealing. afraid of a crowd, right? So why would they? Shoot well, it's just power. It's because he's he's is. abducted, or it's he gets you know he's sucked in by the government. He he gets he's chosen to become the president's analyst, and he's taken. He's summoned to D.C., and so he arrives at Dulles under you know the power of the government, and the he's, airport is completely empty. So it's just talking to the, the head of the C. CEA and the FBR, right? So right. yeah, it's it's just yeah that that that's just super secure and private, right? So yeah, so it would have yeah, it, it is an impressive vision, a scene, you know, just like an empty airport like that. So it's it just, I think it's just to show just it, how public can be, just you know, brushed brushed aside almost or something. It's just like yeah, it's like we are in complete control. And I, so that's the thing is this Theodore, this Ted Flicker guy hadn't, he directed some TV and everything like that, but this is an impressive looking movie, these impressive shots and everything like that. And then looking up and seeing that it's William Fraker and seeing that name. And it's like, he's the guy who did Sharky's machine. Right. Yeah, but, yeah. and so some shots in that were good, but it's like Helico also, helicopter, helicopter shot. shots. Yeah. Helicopter and shot. so it's like, you can really see, I'm, I'm, I need to just do a, a deep dive into William Fraker, the cinematographer, because I think especially this film, it's impressive. The the shots, there are a lot of impressive shots in this film. Well, Sharky's yeah. Machine was shot well, too. Like all those sort of rear window-esque scenes. And yeah, there was lots of silhouette and good lighting. And, yeah. you know, it was a noir kind of trashy film, but it was shot elegantly, I yeah. thought. Yeah. Yeah. So that the, the yeah that helicopter shot from the Statue of Liberty where you have a close-up of James Coburn on the torch mm-hmm. and then it pulls back and goes throughout the city, right? Or goes to the city. So that, yeah, definitely, like, apparently that was William Fraker's signature move because he did that <laughs> twice in Sharky's Machine too, right? Well, yeah. the other challenge is those scenes are usually super zoomed in, which means it's even harder to keep them stable. Yeah. And those, I was watching hard this time to all those shots, and they were pretty stable. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they weren't today stable, but they were... They were, I mean, yeah, I think he was, that definitely was close too. It was a helicopter shot. They probably could have gotten pretty close because it wasn't next to a building or they're above the Statue of Liberty. But but the wind, yeah, he's his hair isn't blowing around, so they can't be too close with the helicopter. But and that's right. the thing is about it's, that generation of cinematographers is they they talk about that as is they came from TV, so they had access to like news cameras. So a lot of them started out as news cameramen, and those those cameras had zooms, like uh-huh. news camera film cameras had zooms. And so when those cinematographers started moving into narrative film making right they brought those lenses where a, a, a traditional hollywood cinematographer would never use a zoom lens right so that's why all the 70s films and parodies of them have zooms right is mm-hmm. because all of a sudden you had this new generation of cinematographers that came from tv and started bringing that gear and so that that's probably part of it is like knowing how to basically get pretty close with the helicopter but then have the zoom lens right and then then 
then zoom out while you're also pulling out, pulling yeah. the helicopter away. So I th- I think that mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's if you start looking at films from that area, you, like Dog Day Afternoon, I think for some reason when I watched that, I was like, okay, yeah, this is there's a lot going on <laughs> with the zoom, you know. Well, it's interesting because Hitchcock used zoom as well, effective, but mostly for effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that like the falling, yeah, yeah, the the Stretching. vertigo effect, yeah. yeah. Where you what you dolly and zoom right yeah yeah that's true there was a I was listening to some podcast about Lucas who had failed with THX eleven thirty two I think was the name of the thirty eight which Lalo Schifrin did yes. the music for too <laughs> did he really yeah, yeah. <laughs> well he was complaining about people were saying that there was it was soulless and there was no emotion in it. he said if you want emotion great I'll I'll kill a cat and people will cry and uh, then he made American Graffiti which was his film to like show people that he could make people you know he, he could very easily push those buttons in this film I thought there was a moment like that that was sort of a dual emotion when she's taping his phone call and playing it back to mm. the government agency his girlfriend who who's she's both betraying him and crying showing mm. that she loves him and i thought i was like this is very mechanically pulled off but i believe it I, be- <laughs> I believe that she's betraying him and i believe that she loves him and like that's all that's all we had to know and then from that point on it carried through to the end of the film yeah 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 she totally disappears Though, yeah, yeah, she's she's not in the rest of the film until the end again. It's really interesting, yeah, to see how, how she's pretty much a main character and then is gone. But they cover that base. They're like, she can come back and be at his Christmas party because we know she loves him. Right. And she, she works, cried as she and betrayed she works him. for the CEA. Not C, oh, CEA? Is yeah, what it was? CEA. So yeah, that was the thing is you can see everybody's mouths so that it was all FBI and CIA and then they changed it. Right, that's what I was wondering because it seemed like they were overdubbing that every time they said it. Yeah. Because allegedly Robert Evans was threatened by the government and that's why he <laughs> added that, that tag at the beginning of the film. Right. Was to kind of a, a fuck you to the, the people that thought that he was making a subversive film. My question is, is why did they overdub? What did they, what did uh, Severn Darden said his mother, the Russian, the Russian said his mother was a not a pacifist for revisionist a revisionist and they're overdubbing that too so I'm curious mm. what what they said originally like a Trotskyist Trotskyite a Leninist or Leninist yeah maybe they said that and they fascist yeah I don't know what she was but it was like like they changed that too and I don't know if that's a joke or if it was like oh yeah like what what would you change yeah from that because I was I was also like once I was tuned into that I was like why what I should go back and watch and see try to figure out what what she was instead of a revisionist because it's a little weird and I'm familiar with the word revisionist I'm just not sure what that is in terms of political yeah exactly oh okay I'm glad it wasn't just my ignorance is that what it is too. I'm not sure if that's yeah, I can't what remember I what they said. That's but they, what, what he said. It was definitely revisionist, and I was okay. like, "Well, what?" So she changes history. That's I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. All right, you got other notes there, Jim. So or? one thing I thought I remember about the music. One time I saw this. I think I must have seen it on television or like AMC at some point. Well, I've, I, I'm trying to remember where I originally saw it, or and and then the music was all different. Right. So there are all sorts of issues with the music in this movie. And so I must have seen it on like on television. When you saw it on broadcast TV, it would have all the original music. But when you watched it on VHS, it would have replacement music. And I had initially heard that that was just that typical thing where they hadn't signed. You know, the music wasn't cleared. Right. Right. So it could be on broadcast, but it couldn't be on VHS because there was there was nothing in the contract about VHS. Right. At the time. Like, yeah. Like Blood Simple. I just right. remember that from the Coen brothers where the 
the bar when it's like Motown night and he plays, he puts the coin in the bartender yeah. and it, it's like a booming bo- Motown song. And then like when you see it somewhere else when they couldn't get the rights for that song, it was like this lame, not not a Motown song at all or just very yeah. weak song. And yeah. It doesn't, oh. doesn't, yeah. <laughs> it's weird, completely is, uh, ruins it. Manhunter the same with Inagata Devita. I seem uh-huh. to remember in the theater seeing Manhunter, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, and it's there Inagata is a change. Yeah, and then on television, song. it was something else. And it's just like, wow, this is really bad. Like the the whole the reason why the ending of that movie is good is because it's it's a freaking music video for Inagata Devita, <laughs> right? You know, yeah. it's like to sit in the theater and hear that, and then to see it on TV later, and it was like, ugh, it's I, terrible. I believe I saw it on tape with because I've never seen it in the theater, but I yeah. believe I saw it once with Inagata Devita. I think that was on video cassette. Yeah, and I think TV. it's been restored or something. Yeah, I can, yeah, I can't remember. But yeah, uh, but this, from what I've heard though, what I heard is like at least the Barry Maguire song is that for a while, or Barry Maguire was a born again Christian and at some point he just didn't want to give permission for the use of his music in the film because he didn't feel like it was... Christian? Yeah, a morally upstanding movie, mm-hmm. right? So it was his pre, pre-conversion pre movie and kind of character where he's this kind of druggy hippie guy and then and so he didn't feel like the movie was a good representation of where he was at later and so that i i had heard that that was that was the actual problem is for a while he wasn't signing over the rights for like vhs and well because stuff like that nobody's died in the name of christianity (laughs) so why would why would he depict that on film the people who introduced me to the president's analyst and manhunter and the wicker man uh, were the little brothers and I'm actually happy to say that this podcast inspired me to go visit John Little in oh, wow. in Boston. So in between the times we've taped, I actually I was like, I've been talking a lot about you and thinking a lot about <laughs> you. So I went out and and uh, had dinner with him. It was a it was a great time. Cool, it's fun. I found out that Neil LeBute directed the remake of Wicker Man. Yes, yeah, I knew that. The guy who does um, who it? makes the, movies that I never want to see in the Company again. of Men. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's just like Friends good. and Neighbors. Oh yeah, Friends and Neighbors. That was a hard one. Yeah, did, were you there, Jim? We I I remember yeah. seeing him at Eberfest. Yeah, I feel like yeah, he's a really complex person. Yeah, it was like you know like Ebert Fest is in Champagne, and it's like all kind of you know it's, it's a serious you know film audience and stuff, but it's still it's like middle you know midwestern and kind of genteel in a way but it was like after that show that he he, he was there in person you know and he showed it was friends and neighbors right i think so and yeah so ebert is on stage interviewing him and they start open the, the floor to questions from questions from the audience and was it like someone up in the uh, the balcony is like is like what was the what is it something like why do you I'm trying to remember. If it it's, seems like it's such a joke, like it was set up, but it wasn't. It was like, do you why do you think your characters need to swear so much? Or, <laughs> and then there's something like that, you know. And then and he was like, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, it was like, it was like such a joke. It was like a, such a setup, but like, he, that's all he said. He was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Well, he just doesn't yeah. know that people don't swear in the Midwest. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember thinking that he kind of did not. Yeah, I I I think I I trusted him less after. After that that question and answer, where it's like, oh, I think he's, I think he might just be a bad person that wants to make people feel bad with his movies. It's not that he's, you know, trying to make the world a better place by showing how awful people are. I think he's he's saying people are terrible, and I want to show you terrible people, and I want you to feel bad because of because I feel bad or something. I I really gotta I think so. I mean, yeah, I think negative that's, vibe off of him. That's what I got out of it. Was, yeah. 
He, I mean, you know, I've, yeah. my head was there at one time in my yeah, life. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I was, I, I can understand, I could empathize with those movies. I, I thought the first one was cool until like I looked back at it and I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, I was an awful person. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a litmus test for whether or not you should be. So I guess to. that's not reason to watch the remake of Wicker Man yet. No, I mean, I would do want to watch it yeah. just because I'm curious, but I think it's so bad that it's not even worth watching. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. Should this film, The President's Analyst, be lost? I vote no. I, yeah, I, I picked this movie. I like this movie, but I also feel like time may have passed it by. Yeah, no, yeah. Or it's it, made it more poignant. No, it's great. Yeah, it's definitely great to watch. But it, it is, it is, you know, these things, these do get more and more dated the more every time I watch, you know, after. But it, that doesn't mean anything, you know, who cares? You know, it's great. It's of its time. But it's definitely better than there are all these other movies from that same period. They're very similar, you know, like I Love You, Alice B. Toklas. Right. And The Party. <laughs> The party, the Ooh, is, which is yeah, which almost. are totally the same. Very have the yeah. same little bits. They're like the weird, you know, the kind of the straight normal guy, you know, flirting with all the hippies, kind of going into this weird lifestyle, just yeah. flirting with the weird alternative lifestyle and going to some, you know, hanging out with hippies or going to this party or, or yeah, kind of puncturing the square lifestyle and then yeah, showing and like all, a square guy going into the hippie world. Yeah, yeah, they all have. They're all very similar. They have the little montages where they, that happens, and but this is definitely the best of those. And it's it's more serious. It's got and like you said, yeah, it's definitely come to pass. It's it's very. I think it just, was foreshadowing. I mean, it's yeah, just come to see, true. Basically, it's just to see that the phone company's Facebook. <laughs> I think yeah. that's just poignant enough. Yeah. Like and it's beautiful. Yeah, I love I love this period. I love all these '60s movies and the music. I love yeah. I love all that f- jazz flute. I love jazz flute. <laughs> so that's the one thing is like watching that intro thing with Godfrey Cambridge talking about the N-word and realizing maybe the first time I saw this was on television and that part's not in the movie. Right. Because right. I'm also thinking anybody just going in and watching this movie, like turning it on cold, having no idea what it's about. Mm-hmm. If that's the first five minutes of the yeah. movie, you're going to go... I don't think I want to watch this. It's almost, it's, almost Tarantino-esque. It's so intense and yeah. emotional and not funny. Yeah. No. Really. It gets, it kind of twists, you know, and he gets lighthearted and everything like that. But it's just like, oh my God, they open with that. And I'm trying to think, well, why did I keep watching this? And I'm thinking, well, maybe the first time I saw it, yeah, if it was on regular television, they would have snipped, snipped that whole part out. I felt like it was a personal story of the actors. Yeah. I felt like the director said, hey, tell me the story the first time you had heard a negative, you know, the N-word used in a negative connotation. And he and went off. So I read something mm-hmm. and he said it, it was somebody else's story, but it was not Godfrey Cambridge. Well, reflecting on the fact that in the first five minutes of this film, there's that impassioned speech around the the n-word yeah should this film be found and our litmus test for that is would you recommend this to your students or colleagues man i don't know i i love this movie you know i'm thinking also about william daniels knight rider's voice right and yeah, that, uh, what is it? Plastics. A, a in, huge uh, part of this movie. I can't believe. Yeah, yeah. I forgot all about William Daniels. He's is he the guy who says plastics in? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. The Graduate. Yeah. No, wait. He was or, the, he was his father. He's the father, he was and not then, the guy who says plastics. Yeah, it's the other guy. But anyways, you know, kind of playing that straight '60s 
guy, but then like how manic and crazy he is and talking about the guns and how we're going to, we're going to arm before they, you know, the, the, the left wing kind of like a left wing gun nut kind of thing. Right. Just the weirdness of that and his mania in that, like how he's in, uh, he's in parallax view, actually. Mm-hmm. William Daniels is too. Now that I think about it, he, he's a little more, he's more frazzled in that. He's like an ex, I think like CIA guy or something in, in that. But yeah. Mm-hmm. So there, there are moments in it that are so amazing that I want people to see it, but I, I do wonder, yeah, if it holds together, right? I would recommend it to people, but I don't care what people think about <laughs> me. <laughs> what I care about is, like, if I'm going to recommend a movie to someone, I want to make sure that it resonates with them and they value my opinion. So it might be the kind of thing where you nurture it, where it's like you definitely wouldn't say to somebody, like, hey, you got to watch The President's Analyst, and that's the first movie recommendation you give them, right? Or you might go with The Matrix first <laughs> and work your way to The President's Analyst. Or The Cat from Outer Space. space exactly. <laughs> That'd be the second one. So you've probably seen E.T., right? <laughs> you got to see this movie, Cat from Outer Space. Spielberg ripped, ripped the whole it. thing off. So much better. I was doing that the other day. Those people were talking about, oh, I love Hereditary. I'm like, have you seen Exorcist 3? It's the same fucking movie. And these people are like, what? I'm like, I'm, oh, yeah. Uh. That's another movie where somebody just mentioned it on Facebook, actually. It was watching Exorcist 3 and, and saying. It's a great movie. Yeah, and it's just like, it's, well, it's not a great movie. It's their pieces of it that are great, right? Oh, I loved it. I is mean, that the, I, you're the, right, the but cat, I loved it. The, the fish, the fish in the bath. The fish that that's fish? what I said. Yeah. I watched the yeah. carp scene sure, the other day. The Exsanguination, <laughs> the, the old woman crawling on the ceiling. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. All that shit's oh, in that hereditary. Oh, that chilling moment, the one, the one chilling, the the scariest thing I've ever seen in a movie is when that, that nerd, the, the, bad guy or whatever in the nurse's the big, outfit carrying the big chopper oh yeah, the shears, yeah. just walks by. Oh, yeah. that chills me just thinking about it. That <laughs> that upset me so much. And I don't like horror movies or anything, but yeah, it's so amazing. You know the story of that film, right? No. is basically William Peter Blatty wanted to make a movie of his book, right? Which was not The Exorcist 3. He wanted to make a movie. And basically the only way they, he could get it made, he wanted to direct, William Peter Blatty directed it, right? The only way he could get it made is if they called it Exorcist 3. And so he had to, he had to modify his film. To, in order to direct a film and get it made, it had to be Exorcist 3. So that mm-hmm. film didn't start out as Exorcist 3. It started out as another book, and then he had to shape it and add little bits and pieces to make it Exorcist 3. Yes, Scott and I love Exorcist 3, Blade, there's just there's just certain films that <laughs> resonated with us. No matter how bad anybody tries to tell us they were, they just there was something. I think I the sum of its parts to us was greater than the whole when it comes to those films. Should we rewind this film? We rewatch it. I think Rick's conflicted about whether or not we should rewatch this film. I say yes. It was better this time than it was the first time I saw it. Kind of dragged at the end. The, the last bit seems to it seems to lose its way and it moves so good i <laughs> was thinking about that he moves so quickly from like there's not a lot of fat in it at the beginning where he goes from he gets the gig and then i'm thinking oh it takes a while for him to get super paranoid and, and get exhausted but no it's it's like it's about like a 5 minute scene that he moves from you know being the president's analyst and it being a cool thing to being a complete paranoid mess right and so it it had lots of scenes and lots of action but i agree the ending feels a little, it, so, it loses it a little bit right at the end. I have to wait a few years before I forget that the ending kind of drags and then I watch it again. Okay. <laughs> the, the phone company is what drags for you? <laughs> I don't know. It would just seem, yeah, by it's the time, a, they just after that all that stuff, yeah. Yeah. Probably think that of all movies. <laughs> just like, uh, it's 
Easter eggs at the end. I need to talk about Severin Darden, so the Russian guy. So he would show up as professors, and so he was a, a, a big Second City guy, right? Another person who was sort of like a seminal figure in Second City, the early days of Second City, and and he played this professor character. I think that was one of his characters he kind of developed, and then he got trapped. He's fascinating because both him and uh, actually Godfrey Cambridge were both in Monkeys episodes, so I remember him. Yeah, and remember Severin Darden usually had a beard, and he's in Real Genius. He plays a professor in Real Genius. Basically, any other time you saw him, except for this movie where he plays a Russian, he plays a professor. He has a beard and glasses, and he has that, that really interesting voice, but it's like another person who you'd see all the time on TV in little guest star spots, but never got beyond that, right? It's like should have moved up to this higher tier or something, but kind of got stuck. And so I find him fascinating. And then did you recognize who the phone company guy was? No, who was he? Schneider from <gasps> One Day at a Time. No. I love Schneider. I talk so that's about pretty Schneider amazing. All the time. Isn't that amazing? I mean, if you yeah. think about him, if you go, wow, that's how can you, how, how can someone be that? Schneider character, right? And also be like this total, like, clean cut, plastic corporate robot person. Because well, he didn't right? have a cigarette pack. Didn't have a mustache. Didn't have a cigarette. But yeah. did Schneider right. and Miss Romano ever get together? Boy, I don't know. I didn't watch. I actually didn't watch the show that much. Oh, I watched it all the time. Valerie Bertinelli was on on that show one day at a time. Did I ever uh -huh. tell you the story about when my son and wife met Valerie Bertinelli? And so Valerie Bertinelli, uh, how does it go? So Valerie Bertinelli was trying to talk to my son. I think he was like seven at the time. And she's like, oh, your name's Thomas? She said, my husband's name is Thomas. I should just divorce him and marry you. And then my son like <laughs> runs around the back of my wife and is like super embarrassed. <laughs> and, and my wife goes, oh, he's just so embarrassed. I, you know, uh, probably because his dad's built you up so much because, you know, his dad was in love with you <laughs> when he was a kid. And she's like, oh, that's cute. And she's like, and, and my wife goes, well, actually, I think it's because his dad is in love with your ex-husband. <laughs> and, and she's like, oh, I get that a lot. So, Eddie Van Halen. Right, yeah. yeah. So my wife actually confessed my love for Eddie Van Halen to <laughs> Valerie Bertinelli. That's oh, happened that's amazing. in my life. Or maybe it hasn't happened yet. Who knows? It will happen at some point. <laughs> right. It's in the timeline. Which leads to Café Wa. Café Wa. So Doesn't it's it? in that. And in that this was movie, there's a scene in the, the real Café Wa in Greenwich Village. And which was run by David Lee Roth's uncle, I believe. Uncle or father, did you say? I think it's his uncle. It was his uncle. Yeah, so that's that's the connection there, man. I tell you, there's always the Van Halens are always nearby. The, <laughs> the spirit of this podcast, it's a Van Halen-esque podcast. Yeah, I did listen. That was really funny when I, I called you a uh, Sammy. Um, <laughs> a Sammy was not in Van Halen. Um, that's an insult. Artie Johnson uh, was one yeah. of the FBR men. Artie oh, Johnson. That's right. From, I, uh, I looked I, when I looked this up before, and I saw his name. It was like, oh, he's in this, and I completely forgot. And I, are, are, yeah, so I from laughing, him. Yeah, Artie Johnson from laughing without the glasses. He yeah, didn't have the little. And do you remember? I maybe was maybe that wasn't. I remember Steve Albini saying Steve that, Albini was in this movie. No, he <laughs> said that his. I feel like this is true. This could I could this could be the d dementia sort of mixing everything up. But I believe he said that his parents babysat for Artie Johnson and his brother, and, and the brother was fun funnier. Artie Johnson wasn't the funny one. <laughs> How's that for a weird bit of trivia? 
Man, we are out. coming with hot takes tonight. So take that, Artie Johnson. Take that, Steven Spielberg. <laughs> what else? Oh, the Killing Field scene. The one that you said. I love that Chris, scene. Yeah, you remember just the... Yeah, so beautiful shots in this movie and beautiful setups. What's the Killing Field scene? The Killing Field. <laughs> the, the field where they're, he's with the hippie oh, yeah, girl yeah, in the yeah. field and all the spies yeah. from all the different countries are going to kill them and they all each get killed. They kill right. each other. Which reminds me of, I think, an earlier reference on this podcast was the Garden of Eden in the middle of Kansas. Right. The little crazy house. Yeah, you and I went out there. The sculpture around the house. The, some of the sculptures are, it's like a, a bird and there's a cat, like maybe the bird's going after worm and then there's a cat going after the bird and oh, there's right. a dog on a branch going after the cat mm. and there's a guy who's going to shoot the, not shoot the dog. I can't remember. Something, it is something like that. Or, or there's an, yeah. And there's it's like a, a fox or something. Yeah. yeah. And there's like a, like a native American <laughs> and then <laughs> about to scalp the guy with the gun. Yeah, you know, and then there's, there's like a, like a Confederate soldier guy shooting the, the Indian, you know, and then. I can, yeah, it's crazy. It's just like that. It's like one killing the next one down, going down like dominoes, taking each other out. I that's, forgot about that. Yeah, yeah that's, that's totally the, yeah. one of the themes of that, the sculpture on that. And They've allegedly really fixed that up. Like it's, they've yeah, made it I, even I, more I, prominent feature I looked, in that Yeah, town. I looked at the webpage and it's all, looks very nice. It's, they definitely did some restoration. <laughs> we need to go, we need to go again. I just remembered I, a movie I watched since the last episode, The Doberman Gang. Doberman What's gang. that? I oh my God. I, 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 I remember it down. once you say it. I, it I, I was able to watch it free on YouTube. It's a bank robber has a terrible bank robbery experience with human robbers. And then he, his gang, he says, his human gang, he says, it's the human element. That's the problem. And he starts saying, I'm going to get robots or something. And then he realizes he needs to train a team of Dobermans to rob a bank. And so it's a movie about a man training a pack of six Dobermans to rob a bank. And then you know what happens? The Dobermans rob a bank. <laughs> it's really amazing. I saw this. My, my wife and I were talking about this movie. And it was like, this was the most amazing movie we, we saw when we were kids. It was like, if if you could, you couldn't make up a movie that would be a more perfect movie for kids to watch, right? Especially in the 1970s. It's bank robbers and it's dogs, right? Dogs robbing banks. It's a heist film. Heist film for children, definitely, definitely a double double feature with the cat from outer space. From outer yeah. space, that's awesome. Well, gentlemen, I'm going to wrap it up. I'm going to okay. say sincerely, there's no other way <laughs> that I would rather spend my uh, 49th birthday. What? But what? here, <laughs> oh no, with the really? two of you watching the President's Analyst. Oh, but actually, no. it's not your 49th birthday. <laughs> 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 Lost and Found and Rewound is fully funded by Lost and Found and Rewound Foundation Funds. Lost and Found and Rewound does not use crowdfunding because our listeners have better things to do with their funding. There's no need to post reviews of Lost and Found and Rewound because our listeners have more valuable things to do with their time. In all sincerity, thank you for listening to the show. We truly appreciate it. This has been a presentation of the Lotus Pod Podcasting Network.